We're going to be in chapter 3 today, looking at verses 17 and 18. And before we get into verse 17 and 18, I kind of want to read through verses 14 to 21, that you have it fresh in your mind, that you understand the context of this prayer in which Paul is lifting up on the behalf of the believer, of which is the second of two prayers in this letter. Now, if you remember, we went through chapter 1, and Paul's breaking down all this divine truth of who you are individually in Christ. Again, if you are in Christ, you are positionally righteous. You stand righteous before God because of the righteousness of Christ it covers you. Amen? we got positional righteousness down, don't we? Justified by faith. And he stops in chapter 1 and he begins to pray that the eyes of our understanding would be open to grasp the reality of your position in Christ. And he goes on in chapter 2 and he's breaking down this great mystery of Christ that Jew and Gentile would actually become one in Christ. And we did an extensive study on that. We do not have time to go back to that. In chapter 3... He wants once again to stop and to pray that you will understand, that we will understand that we are one in Christ, that we are positionally righteous. And this great mystery of Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, male and female, all being one in Christ, he stops to pray. But in chapter 3, verse 2, or verse 1 rather, he stops, and one more time he wants to break it down to make sure that we understand this reality. And finally he gets to the prayer in verse 14, so I'm going to read verses 14 to 21. Verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, and depth, and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church. By Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So right here, we have a key passage right in the middle of the book of Ephesians. And, and what it does is it bridges the first and the second parts of the letter. Now, if you've been with us, you understand that chapters 1, 2, and 3 are very theological. It's really revealing the mind of God. It's really helping us understand what I opened with, our position in Christ, the one that we, oneness we have in Christ, unity of the body, a temple built together piece by piece that makes up the whole. That you and that I are the very temple of God. That the Holy Spirit resides in you, that he resides in me. And we, although individuals, we make up the temple of the Lord. This is his church, fitly placed together to serve as he's gifted you uniquely, individually, so that the church, being unified, brings glory to God. Specific roles and specific gifts, all functioning together, all working together, of which we learn gives reason for who to give praise to God. The angels, which we learned about. When the church functions together it's supposed to, it gives reason for the angels to glorify God. So may we understand these deep truths, because all the theology that's laid out in chapters 1, 2, and 3 gives us understanding to apply all this truth that we will learn as we're instructed in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Because chapters 4, 5, and 6 will lead us to practical, relational um intermingling of one another. 
behavior, speech, thought, all of that. And as we've said in weeks past, you can't live out what you don't understand. Amen? We're called to understand what we believe and why we believe it. Many people don't know what they believe. They don't know why. They don't know how to explain. So as Christians, we want to be rooted and grounded in truth. And that's what Paul's praying here, that we will live out this power. He talks about the riches that we have in Christ. Remember that? The riches that we have in Christ. And that word riches has been used several times by Paul in this letter. And we, we have to come to understand that as Christians, we are rich beyond measure with spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. There's a lot of nonsensical, crazy type of teaching about that God wants you to be rich practically and materially wealthy, and if you're not, then you don't have his blessing on your life, and all that crazy nonsense. You know what? You're already rich in Christ. Rich, beyond measure. But the focus is spiritual richness because of the one who indwells you. And what Paul is praying that we'll have a grasp and an understanding of the, that reality to be able to live it out. So he's praying one more time before he gets to the instructions of how to live out a godly life. Amen? We know in chapter 2 that we were dead in trespasses and sins, weren't we? But as we look through chapter 2, if just as a refresher, we were adopted into the family of God. We were slaves of sin and death, weren't we? Made alive in the Spirit. Purchased by His blood. Accepted in the Beloved. Sealed with the Holy Spirit, as chapter 1 tells us. Forever, and you are forever his possession. Protected and sustained by divine providence. Divine providence. God's will will be worked out in and through our lives. And our life will bring glory to God. We're built up, ruled by, loved by, taught by, and blessed by our Master, Jesus Christ. All because of his grace. All because of his grace. And in chapter 3, verse 10, we see his manifold wisdom made known by the church to the principalities and powers, the angels. We learned about that a couple weeks ago. We're possessions for the unsearchable riches of Christ. Because we're one in Christ, we're redeemed, we're brought back into the family of God, and we're more than conquerors in Christ. you understand that? When a military regime would go out and conquer another, not only would you be conquerors, but you'd get all the spoil, too. That's what we are. Conquerors in Christ. We have all these riches available to us, but yet so many Christians, with all this available to them, they just kind of spiritually limp along in their life. Focused on the outer man. Paul's prayerful desire here is to see functioning Christians moving along, walking out, living out their life, and guess what? Holy Spirit power. Holy Spirit power. And that's the focus today of our study. And I call this a connection of control. A connection of control. And this connection of control will be more clearly seen today through this study of verses 17 and 18. So this is, this, this, uh, progression leads to, or leads from rather, the inner strength of verse 16 that we looked at last week. It's a progression here. Inner strength, the inner man being built up. Two, verse 17, the indwelling Christ, leading to his inconceivable love of verse 18, to his immeasurable fullness in verse 19, and then finally to an in internal power of verse 20. We'll break those down in the next couple weeks. But today's focus will be on the indwelling Christ and his inconceivable love. That's what we're going to look at today.
Now, last time we looked at verse 16, as I said, the strengthening of the inner man. It would be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Now, as a believer, everybody in this room, if you're a true believer in Christ, you have the same power available to you that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen? Are you aware of that today? The same power that raised Christ from the dead resides and indwells you. And Paul's prayer is that you will live according to that power. But to live according to that power, one must yield themselves in submission to the power source, you see, which is God himself, God the Holy Spirit. Now, how much time and effort do Christians spend on the inner man? If you look at the professing church today, obviously not much time, amen? A lot of Christians will pray for things of outward comfort, material goods, you know, comfort in everyday life and so on. But how many Christians pray that, God, I pray you'll strengthen me in the inner man, whatever it takes, that I will be submitted and committed to the power that you provide me with all the riches that I have in Christ Jesus so that my life would bring glory and honor to you. How many Christians pray that prayer? My encouragement today is that your minds will be open, that your eyes of understanding would be ready to receive what the Lord has for us through his word so that you walk out of here more concerned on the inner man than you will on the outer man. Because see, if you're in Christ, you're no longer a singular being. You're not your own. You can jot this down, 1 Corinthians 6.19. Just jot it down, 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, you're not your own. Every true believer has him. If you're a true believer, you have him. Romans 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. If the spirit of Christ dwells in you, you're his. You're not your own. I'm not my own. And you have power. Because Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses of me. So much of the church's concentration, as I said, is the outer man. If you want an, un, if you want an unanxious spirit, peacefulness within, you have to have a strong inner man. You have to have a strong inner person where the spirit resides. Power. It can be unleashed through your life. That's what Paul's praying about. That's what he wants us to understand. A spirit-controlled life. You are able because his spirit and power are there, Acts 8. Acts 1, verse 8. And you know what it boils down to, brothers and sisters? It boils down to yielding to that power. Submission. Yieldedness. Yieldedness. You know, when you come into an intersection, what do you do for oncoming traffic? You just, you just pull back right of way. You gotta give them right away. A yielded submission to Him, the one who lives in you, the one who lives in me. That's the focus of Paul's prayer. The only way your thoughts will ever be on Him, for your thoughts to be on Him, is to study His Word and then apply His Word to your life. In other words, we, we, we've come to learn over the weeks that everything begins with knowledge. Everything in this Christian walk begins with knowledge. And you live out what you know in submission to what you know, always according to his word. 
And we therefore test all things in light of the word and hold fast to that which is true, you see. So I can't encourage you enough to not only invest in your spiritual growth and the strengthening of the inner man, not only by the study of the word, but by study of books that are written by men who've been studying the word of God for decades and those going back centuries and centuries. And I encourage you to buy some of these great books because these this books that we have for sale, when they're gone, we'll buy more. But there's no fluff on the shelves. This brings you into the face of God. This brings you into the face of who He is and what He declares. Not a lot of this emotional nonsense that's being touted out there. Let's learn about God and what He thinks, you see. Paul's prayer is that the inner man will be strengthened for that purpose, bring glory and honor to God. And that leads us to verse 17. That was introduction right there, verse 17. The focus. Let me begin in verse 14 again. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, so that... Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, what is the length, what is the depth, and what is the height. This word, so that, right? It's a purpose clause, and it translates hina, which is a, it's, it's a Greek word used to introduce purpose clauses, Okay? So the purpose of our being strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, the purpose of that is that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Again, the purpose of our being strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man is so that Christ will dwell in you, in your hearts, through faith. Now, if you've really followed that, and in, in, in your thinking is fresh today, some of you are going to say, wait a minute. I don't understand, because if I'm a Christian, Christ is already there. Right? Just notice. He's praying that you'll be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now, how could you have the Holy Spirit and not have Christ? That's a great question. Right? So how is that? Now, the order seems backwards, doesn't it? If you have Christ, you have the Spirit. If you have Christ, you have the power. Paul's already made it very clear that believers are in Christ. Okay? Just listen to this. Very clear. In chapter 1, verse 1, he said, To the saints who are in Christ. Verse 3, chapter 1. Bless, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 10. He's going to gather together all things in Christ. Verse 12, chapter 1. We who first trusted in Christ should be the praise of his glory. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 6. We've been raised, he's raised us up to sit together in the heavenly places where? In Christ. Where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, right? For good works. In verse 13, chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus. Having been far off, you've been brought near by the blood, you see? Are we in Christ, believers? We're in Christ. So what is this that my inner man has to be strengthened so that Christ can dwell in me? That's the question. That's the question. 
So we know that Paul's not referring to indwelling believers in salvation. He's talking about Christ indwelling believers in sanctification. Right? Now we understand that there's three parts to salvation. Justification, sanctification, and... Say it again. Glorification. The moment you become a true believer, you've been justified by faith. Declared free from all blame. And because you're justified by faith, which is a gift from God, when you die, whether you're killed by a truck on the way home, whether you die of your last disease, because you're justified, you will be glorified. When you see him, you will see him as he is, and when you see him as he is, you will then be like him. Now, this place in the middle called sanctification, the moment you're justified, you're immediately set apart. Sanctification needs to be set apart unto holiness. You're immediately set apart, but this process of growth is ongoing from the place of justification all the way to glorification. We are what? We are growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, aren't we? So the context of what he's talking about is sanctification, growth, maturity in Christ. We know he's not talking about Christ and dwelling believers. The reason it's worded that way is because the English is deficient in this area. It's deficient to translate this word. So, you know the New Testament's originally written in Greek, right? So I'm going to give you a couple word meanings here and it's so that you understand what he's talking about. Now, the Greek word that translates dwell is katakeo. Katakeo. And it comes from a verb that goes back to two words. Two words. Kata means down. Okay, get this. Kata means down. And oikeo means to occupy a house. To occupy a house. So kata, kata, added to oikeo, you get katakeo, and it means to be at home. To be at home. To really settle down and be at home. Are you with me? Dwell means to settle down and be at home. So the word dwell goes back to two words connected together. means to settle down, be at home. So Paul is saying, look, when you have inner strength, when you're really walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, given to you as a gift, a spirit-controlled, a spirit-energized life, as we saw in verse 16 last week, Jesus is going to be able to really settle down and be at home and comfortable in you, believer. You got me? He's going to be comfortable in you. He's going to be comfortable dwelling in you. You know, there's a lot of Christians that Christ indwells, but he's not all that comfortable. Come on now. There's a lot of true believers, and only God knows who true believers are, that he lives in, but he is not comfortable. Not comfortable at all. There's times in our own lives that we've greatly discomforted. Amen? There's times in my life I have greatly discomforted Christ. And there's no doubt about it. Anything that saddens Jesus' heart, anything that grieves the Spirit as we move on in, in Ephesians and through Ephesians, you learn about grieving and do not grieve the Spirit, what that means. So we, we see and understand that Christ is in the true believer. Okay, Christ lives in the true believer. There's no doubt about that. It's very clear through what we read this morning as we recap. Christ indwells the true believer. And I have to specify true today because so many people profess Christ. Okay? So many people have always professed Christ. There's true believers 
and there's non-believers. There's no in-betweeners, right? God only knows who they are. But I'll tell you one thing, true believer. Until the Spirit of God controls your very life, he's not comfortable. Until the Spirit of God is, here it is, allowed to control your life, he's not comfortable. He's not comfortable. And until that inner man of verse 16 is strengthened and allowed to be controlled by the Spirit of God, he's going to remain uncomfortable. Are you with me? He's going to remain uncomfortable. It's kind of like living in a mess. Some people are comfortable living in a mess, man. I cannot stand when my house is out of order, my physical home. You know, in my house, I've, I've painted walls specific colors, ceilings specific colors, to give a feeling of comfort, to give a feeling of, of, of warmness. You know what I'm saying? And it lends itself to studying, to reading, and to, into intimate fellowship. That atmosphere just lends itself to just a healthy feeling in study and in reading without distractions. You know what I'm saying? And I'll tell you what, even if like, like the windows are dirty and I'm sitting in one room and I see smudges and stuff and from kids, little kids like spitting and all that stuff all over the windows, it makes me feel really uncomfortable. I gotta get up and I gotta clean it and then ah, I can be comfortable. Even when this kitchen sink is like, has pot, it's porcelain in our house, so if there's like pots and pans things, man, I, I gotta get out the comet and clean it. I just like it clean. I like it in order. Especially before I go to bed, I like to wake up with everything in order so I can go sit in my chair and do my thing, and everything's just fresh. Right? If it's out of order, I'm very uncomfortable. Really uncomfortable. You know, another illustration would be, I was thinking about this, is have you ever been in someone's home and you just feel totally uncomfortable? You feel unwelcomed. It made me think about the time I was six, uh, no, I was 17, and I had this female friend in high school, and she was probably 16, and I was over at her house. And she was off, I'm in the kitchen, she's off either in the bedroom talking to one of her girlfriends, or she's doing whatever, and her dad, he just didn't like me. <laughs> I don't know why he didn't like me, I was very respectful, I always made sure I said, hello sir, I always made sure I addressed him. I'm sitting in the kitchen, he walks in, starts making himself a sandwich, doesn't even acknowledge me. So I'm like, how you doing, sir? Didn't even respond. He's just doing his thing. And I'm sitting there tapping my finger on the table, you know, looking up at the ceiling. I start whistling. And I feel totally out of place. Totally unwelcome. It's like that for Christ in a lot of people's lives. In a lot of believers' lives, that's what it's like. Christ is not at home. Christ does not feel comfortable. A lot of times he probably feels like an intruder. I felt like an intruder that day. I didn't feel welcome at all. I think it was Mr. Mulligan. Pray for Mr. Mulligan. Very uncomfortable, especially for a kid. Very uncomfortable. So the question for the believer is not, is Jesus there? The question is, is, is he comfortable there? That's the question. Is he comfortable? And that's the context. Is Christ at home in you? Is he at home in you? Or is he just absolutely uncomfortable and feels unwelcome? You want to think about that before we move on. You know, regarding sexual immorality, Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. He says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then 
take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Someone's in Christ and sexual immorality, having sex outside of marriage? It's just like bringing Christ right to a harlot, right to a prostitute. Certainly not, he said. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. One spirit with him. You know, in, in, in order for the Lord to clean up some houses, he's got he's to break out the whip. Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He disciplines. People who say they're Christ, they run in, they're just running in rebellion, that nothing in their life reflects the fact that they're a Christian, and nothing ever kind of happens to them, it's a good sign that they're not a Christian. But as a believer, you know, you keep walking from him, you keep stepping outside of him, you keep running from him, and you just keep hitting the same wall over and over again, chastening time after time. That's a great sign. Encouragement is that you repent. That you turn, that you allow him to take ownership of the house. Take ownership. An example, great illustration of this is, don't turn to this, just jot this down. In Genesis 18 and 19, and you, you'll probably remember the story, you know, God appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, right? Remember that? It was the Lord and two angels with him. He comes in, and he's going to speak with Abraham, and he's going to speak with Sarah regarding the promise of this son, Isaac. And that through that son would come a great nation. Through that son would become the nation of Israel. Through that son and through that nation would come the promised one, the Messiah. And it's because of him that we're all sitting here today. Through him would come the sacrifice. Through him would come the resurrection. From him would come the capstone of our faith. Right? So he's standing at his tent door and he sees him coming. He comes and he invites him in. He goes back in. He says, Sarah, you know, prepare a meal for these guys. The Lord's coming to visit. And the Lord goes in and he dines with Abraham and Sarah and he feels very at home there, very comfortable. You get the picture? He's comfortable. And then in chapter 19, just before chapter 19, the Lord stands there talking to Abraham about the fact that he's going to bring judgment upon Sodom. And the two angels go off to Sodom. Once they get to Sodom, we notice in chapter 19 that God's not with them. So he goes down into Sodom, these two angels. They go down into Sodom. They get to the city gate. And who's sitting there? Lot, the nephew of Abraham, sitting at the city gate where all the stuff is happening, where all the action's at hand, right? But notice the Lord's not with them. The angels come. They're going to bring wrath upon this city. Fire's going to come from heaven. Meanwhile, Abraham's back there talking to God. Lord, there's 50, if there's 50 faithful, if there's 50 true believers, will you spare the city? You know, 40, 10, 20, down to 10, right? And the Lord says, look, if there's 10, I'll spare it. There wasn't 10. We know what happened to Sodom, right? But while these angels are there, the Lord doesn't go because he's not comfortable. These angels come. Lot recognizes that these aren't normal average men. So he gets up, he goes, whoa, come on in my house, right? He brings him into the house. He knows the terror of the city. He knows the perversion. He says, come into my house. So these men who are given to homosexuality of all ages, they come knocking at the door and he says, hey, send these men out because we want to have sex with them. They look different. They look like they'll be a ball. Send them out. 
And he says, no, 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 I will not, right? So what do they do? They attempt to get through the door. The angel, boom, zap them, blind at them. They're blind, and what are they doing? You know what they did? They didn't scurry away. They attempted to make their way through the door until they became weary. That's depravity at its finest right there, boy. They attempt to make their way through the door, blind. Lot was a righteous man. God wasn't comfortable, wasn't settled down to go down there. Write this down, 2 Peter chapter 2. We read about Lot in the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, just read this. God, who turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. If you have friends that live a homosexual lifestyle, and they profess to be Christians, and they profess to twist the truth of God and say that it's okay today, remind them that God destroyed Sodom, as an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Bring that one out. Check it out. Verse 7. And although he delivered righteous Lot, he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeking and hearing their lawless deeds. And then the Lord knows how to deliver a godly, man out of, a godly man out of temptations. God delivered him, didn't he? You know what it cost him? Everything that he was dependent upon. Everything that he loved. Everything that he enjoyed, destroyed. And his wife turned into a pillar of salt. Come on now. Because she looked back with longing eyes, loving it, wanting it, hating to leave it. Turned into a pillar of salt. Oh, he was delivered all right, but he was chasing for it. He lost everything that he had, didn't he? He was a righteous man. You know, I used to drop my kids off at school. I still drop my daughter off. When I would drop my son and my daughter off at school, uh, usually I talk about the Lord to some degree on most days, and, and I would say, hey, guys, as they get out of the car, I go, remember the Lord today. Are you okay, Dad? And remember Lot. Because he was a righteous man who was oppressed by the things that he saw and the things that he heard day by day by day as he centered himself amongst unrighteousness. You see what I'm saying? So pick and choose who your friends are. Pick and choose. Because you may be a righteous man or woman who has no inner strength and Christ is not going to settle down and dwell in you because he's uncomfortable there. He's uncomfortable. When your life is controlled by the Spirit of God, when it is controlled by the Spirit of God, a living and yielded moment-by-moment -moment lifestyle, the Spirit control has your life, control of your life, the house is clean, it's swept up, it's put in order, Jesus Christ is able to dwell in you with comfort. He's able to settle on down and be at home. You know, I'm in my house when it's all messed up and all out of order, but I'm not at home. I'm in home, but I'm not at home. You get it? Robert Boyd Munger, he wrote a little booklet in 1954 entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home. Okay? This is available to you today for a donation of $2. <laughs> now, there's a limited supply. Now, I encourage you to go back and donate the $2 and get this little thing because I'm just going to read just little segments of it this morning. Okay? 
And this will bring life to this passage. Okay, he's talking about his little story. He says, you know what? I'll never forget the evening I invited him into my heart. What an entrance he made. It was not some spectacular emotional thing, but it was real.